Thank you, Maggie. And thank you, worship team, um, for leading us this morning. It was beautiful. Uh, beautiful to hear all of your voices this morning. Even with our, uh, many of our men gone, it was, I was encouraged by how strong the congregation sounded. Uh, as, as Wayne said, it was, it was the time I got to spend there Friday and, and yesterday was really good. I will say this, I am tired. Um, Josh Parks said, you know, it's, you're going to sleep in a room full of men full of CPAP machines. How, how I wish that were true. Uh, no CPAP machines, but snoring choir happening the whole night. Uh, high pitch, low pitch. As soon as one man stopped, the other one started. If I wasn't the pastor, I would have been throwing pillows, maybe expletives. Um, I'm, I am tired, so uh, I don't know how you ladies do it. I, don't, I mean, I, I would, I'd be, I'd choke a brother. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, <laughs> if you would open your Bibles to Isaiah 41, Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 20. Uh, I joke, it was that the, the evening, the, the night was rough, but the time together was really good. Um, John Pruitt has done a wonderful job leading the guys, and I think Terry Wolfer and um, Nate O'Neill uh, and uh, Tony Bell have just done incredible jobs leading the guys on that time. So I'm very grateful for them and their investment in our men. Isaiah 41, I'm going to read the first 20 verses. And by the way, my name is James Walden, if we haven't met. Um, and I'm tired, uh, so if I've made that clear. Uh, 41, 1 through 20, I'm going to read that first part. And then later we'll read the rest of the chapter. But for now, 41 through 20. And as I often say, uh, it might help, though it will be on the screen, to have a physical Bible open. Because we'll be turning into some other texts later in Isaiah. And it helps to kind of just have that at your disposal. So verses 1 through 20, Isaiah, the prophet, writes here uh, the voice of the Lord, saying, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let, them, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer strengthens him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, and you will not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh, your kinsman redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage uh, addresses people in fear. The nations are afraid and Israel's afraid. Kids, do you sometimes feel afraid? Sometimes, what are you afraid of? What do you sometimes fear? What makes you feel scared sometimes? Yes. Yes, you. <laughs> scary stories. Yeah, those, those are scary by definition. Scare us. Yeah. What else? Bugs can be scary. Yeah, yes. Giant tarantulas. So we're in the bug category. Yes. Snakes. Okay. These are lots of things to be scared of. I was scared of some of those things. I was also scared of imaginary things. You guys were ever scared of a monster in your closet who wasn't real? Or under your bed? Did you ever have that fear? I had that fear. I swore to my mom I saw hands coming out from under the bed. I didn't, but my imagination was very vivid. <laughs> Did you guys know as you grow up, as an adult, you just don't, you're never afraid anymore. Did you guys know that? <laughs> That's not true. Maybe you get more scared, I don't know. As adults, we have a lot of things we are afraid of. We're afraid for our kids. We're afraid for the statistics that we read that we're bombarded with in the newspapers regarding mental health rates among our children, among uh, the wild west of the internet and social media and the impact that's had. Our kids are confused and overwhelmed anxious, and it scares us. It, it feels different than when we were in school, doesn't it? And that's scary. We're seeing statistics that are breaking ceilings that we've never seen before with mental health, with body dysmorphia, with gender confusion, statistics that are multi-thousand-fold percentage increases 
and it's overwhelming. Since 2011, I believe that was the year Instagram came out, it'd be easy to blame a, plat a social platform, but the correlation is difficult to deny. The percentage of teenage girls feeling persistently sad and hopeless increased from 36% of the population, which is already pretty high, to 57% in 2022. The numbers have jumped for both men and women regarding body dysmorphia since the explosion of social media. And we're scared. I'm not going to even mention those explicit websites that are doing terrific damage to our young men and women. Our culture makes us scared. Here we are seeing horrifying demonstrations of anti-Semitism on college campuses and explicit support for terrorist organizations by some of the most educated people in our nation. We're continuing to see an increase of, of vocal and vitriolic white supremacism, not just in the dark corners of the web, but in public daylight. We're seeing tribalism increase, our nation increasingly divided, talk now of civil war in the U.S. and a civil divide. You know, the worst part of our fear is feeling alone in it. And when I was scared and I, had, I thought a monster was under my bed, the biggest thing that helped was when my mom or my dad came into the room with me. Feeling alone in your fear is hard. And so often for us as adults, our fear turns to anger because anger feels a little bit more manageable to us. It feels empowering to be angry. And then what does anger do? Anger seeks a mob. To quote Vampire Weekend, <laughs> anger wants a voice. Voices want to sing. Singers harmonize until you can't hear anything. That's a great description of Twitter, or now X, right? A chorus of angry voices. We're scared of the moral decay in our institutions, the trust decay toward institutions, and the collapse of our institutions. Time Magazine released an article in January of this year entitled, The Coming Collapse of the United States Healthcare System. We're seeing similar articles about the coming collapse of the modern university. Experts are predicting between 25 to 50% of colleges in the U.S. will close within the next decade. We're seeing the collapse of what seems to be our political system. Whatever happened to the Republican Party? What has happened to the Democrat Party? What has happened to Congress, to the Office of President? Who's leading this place? It makes me nervous. Who's in control? Who's, who's in charge around here? Is there any morally responsible adults, right? Like that's the fear that we feel. The number of deaths by suicide has dramatically increased. 2022 saw the highest number to date, increasing over the last highest date, 2018, by over 1,000 deaths. When adjusted for population growth and age, the rate of deaths by suicide has risen 16% since 2011. The rise of drug addiction and death by overdose has dramatically increased. In 2021, saw six times the number of death by overdoses than we had in 1999. Six times. 
We're scared about the future, the future of our economy. What is the future of our political institutions? We're scared of the, the future of our nation. What is the future of America going to be? We're scared of our world, the rapid climate change and natural catastrophes that we're seeing. Russia's ongoing war crimes against Ukraine, Hamas's ongoing war crimes against Israel and their own Palestinian people. And the, not just to mention the, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The growing anti-Israel coalition in the Middle East, the rising threat of China in league potentially with Russia. So kids, you can see we have a lot to be afraid of. We're a lot we're scared of. We don't stop feeling afraid when we grow up. But the good news of this passage to a very fearful world is that God invites us to be comforted by Him in His presence. Three times God tells His people, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. I am with you. I am the one who comforts you. God doesn't come like sometimes the false comfort we get in our fear and anger, which is, can I find someone else to seethe with? with? Someone else to worry with. God doesn't sit with us and worry with us. He comforts us in our fear. He gives us strength and he helps us. He gives us courage in a scary world not to retreat away from it, to withdraw from what seems scary, but to have courage to enter into what seems scary with the comfort with which God has comforted us, with the good news that he's given us to proclaim. And so I want to invite us now to pray, kids and adults, and I'll give us a moment to maybe name some of the fears that we have and just invite God into that fear. It could be something on the news. It could be something very personal in your own life that you're scared of. Name that and invite God in. He is eager to draw near and comfort us. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are a people of fear. We have a lot of them. You know that. You're compassionate towards us in that. And you invite us to bring our fears, our anxieties, our deepest fears even, to name them, to dare to name them and bring them in your presence. Lord, we name some of them right now. Heavenly Father, you hear our fears. You encourage us to seek comfort in you. And you promise that you are with us when we are afraid. And that you give us strength. You give us courage to move forward. Not to retreat and run away backwards, but to move forward. Trusting in you. That you will be our strength. You will be what we need. You will be our protection. You will be the power we need in a scary world when we feel powerless. Lord, give us your strength now and be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
At this time, our children's church is dismissed, as well as Crossroads. God go with you all. And then as adults, we'll, we'll, we'll turn back our attention toward chapter 41, where God has called his people as his servant not to retreat in fear, uh, but to move forward in faith and in confidence in him. It be, our passage begins here in 41 in the first uh, Really, the first seven verses is a call to the nations, a summoning to court. Let's go to the place of judgment, God says. Let's, let's, let's bring out all the evidence. And he begins by calling the coastlands, literally the ends of the earth is the idea. And he says, let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let's draw near into the place of judgment. And he asks a who question. Who stirred up one from the east? Who's done this? And we know the answer because we already read it. It's the Lord. And what is the this? Who is this being summoned? Well, most students of Isaiah agree this is referring to a Persian emperor by the name of Cyrus. I mentioned him last week. He was the emperor who would eventually cause the collapse of the Babylonian Empire and then restore captured people to their native homelands, including Israel to the land of Judah. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying this in the 8th century. These events wouldn't happen until the middle of the 6th century. So he's a man ahead of his times here. He, he later mentions the same figure in 41 verse 25, which we haven't read yet. But in verse 25, he says, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. That's the east. Well, which one is it? Was he stirred up from the east or from the north? Well, he came from the east, but in his attack against Babylon, he would have come from the north. And he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. So, so far, he's an unnamed ruler who will conquer kingdoms. But he is named explicitly in chapter 44 and 45. If you'll turn there to 44 verse 28, when God's asking this who question again, who has done this? Who is the sovereign ruler of history? He says in verse 28, who says of Cyrus, this is known in history as Cyrus II, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And then chapter 45 continues, thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, to his anointed, to his Messiah, to Cyrus whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places. You may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Cyrus doesn't know who stirred him up, who's using him for his righteous purposes. 
but he will name him. In his letter to the exiles, listen to what Cyrus writes. This is from the book of Ezra. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus will lay the foundations of the temple or be uh, at least in charge of that process. That is a remarkable prediction, isn't it? Eighth century, he's predicting these events that would unfold in 530-something B.C. But you know an even more remarkable prediction of Isaiah. Centuries after Cyrus was a very precise prediction of the coming Messiah himself. Not just a Messiah, Cyrus, the Messiah, Jesus. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and following. These were written by the prophet, again, in the 8th century, predicting events with scarily accurate descriptions. Centuries, 700 years before Christ. So that when Christ was rejected by the leadership, beaten, mocked, spat on, and crucified, no one should have been shocked. And yet, everyone was. Listen to what Isaiah writes, or or read it with me, verses 4 and following. Surely he, whoever this mysterious servant figure is, he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In other words, not good judgment. Yet, who of his generation protested? Who stood up for the man? Not even his own disciples. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned to a grave with the wicked, Joseph's tomb, and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though Yahweh makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. I thought he died. (laughs) After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. This is one text Paul was thinking when he said to the Corinthians, what I received as first importance, I I traditioned to you, I handed over to you. Namely, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And remember, the Scriptures were not the New Testament. Those weren't written yet. (laughs) It's the Old Testament 
According to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Guys, if we ever feel like the world's out of control and we ask the question, who is in charge around here? Remember the one who predicted this, who predicted Cyrus and with precision predicted the coming death and resurrection of the Christ. Why can God predict history? Because he alone controls it. The nation's response, he calls them, he invites them to renew their strength, just like he told Israel back in chapter 40, verse 28. Renew your strength. But where do they go to find their strength? They go to each other and to their idols. You notice that? Going back to chapter 41, verses 5 and following. The coastlands have seen, they've seen this rising emperor, and they are terrified. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn in near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says, be strong, brother. And then what do they do? They strengthen their idols. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths, the ha- smooths with the hammer strengthens him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. Like a, a perverse twist of Genesis 1, when God created the earth and said, it is good. Man creates his idols and says, it's good. And they strengthen it. Isn't that ironic? God offers to strengthen us. We have to strengthen our idols. (laughs) Just so they can stand upright. The nations panic and go to their idols. But God invites Israel. He invites his people, verse 8, to find strength in him. Verse 8, but you, Israel. This is not how you respond in panic. This is not how you run away. You find strength in me. And so God reassures Israel, one, that despite the exile, despite being scattered over the known world after the Babylonian incursion and exile, you are still my people. I am still your God. I have not forsaken you. I am with you. Even in the scariest places, in the scariest places of the Babylonian empire, in the darkest corners, there I am. You guys might be familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was a believer and a a strong sister in Christ who found herself in a Nazi concentration camp because of standing up for what was being committed, the crimes committed against Jews in her country. Um, And she uh, at one point reached a point of despair. And her sister reminded her, there is no hole so deep, no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. He's there. He's here with us. And this is what God's reminding his people who find themselves in the pit of despair, in the pit of exile. I am with you. I have chosen you. The offspring of Abraham, my friend. Abraham was chosen to be a blessing to the nations. Israel was chosen to be a blessing to the nations, to bear witness to God. It's the constant call of Isaiah 40 through 55. My servant Israel, be my servant to the nations. Bear witness. What did I say of Cyprus? Or Cyrus, rather. Repeat this to the nations. Let the nations know. What did I say of Christ? Repeat this to the nations. Let the nations know. 
but they were fearful and withdrew. So God calls us to not fear. He repeats that in 10, 11, 13, and 14. Fear not, for I am with you, verse 10. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Verse 11. Uh, Behold, all who are incensed shall be put to shame. Those who strive shall be put to nothing. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you will not find them. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand. It is I who say, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob. And in our staff discussion, we were like, is this, is this God throwing shade on his people, you mere worm? You know, No, it was a picture of their utter vulnerability and weakness before these worldly powers. You know, after a good rain, you see the earthworms just exposed on the surface. They have no protection, blind, no help. And so he calls them in their vulnerability worm, but then he says something quite remarkable. He says, you mere worm, I'm going to make you into a threshing sledge, verse 15. And not an old, dull threshing sledge, new, sharp, with teeth. What is a threshing sledge? It was a board that was used to thresh out the grain. It had teeth on the bottom of it, and you would pull it along, and it would tear up the stalks and separate the grain, but also pull up earth. And he's saying, you will thresh whole mountains into dust. How will little Jacob do this? Well, they didn't know. They just were called to trust. On the one hand, the language mimics the language of Cyrus earlier on. He will turn the nations to dust, into chaff. Partly through Cyrus, they will conquer. But through other incredible events, the book of Esther comes to mind. They will defeat their enemies until finally Christ comes and defeats our greatest enemy. It is Christ who will say after sending the disciples out, behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you will have power over these dark forces in the world. The apostle Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, O saints. Little flock you will run roughshod over the devil. How can that be? My small group leader, Tommy, pointed this out to me, made this connection for me about this removing of mountains. It's language Jesus uses, isn't it? If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be cast into the heart of the sea and it will be so. There are mountains of evil in the paths of righteousness mountains of corruption in our world, and it'd be easy for us to be overwhelmed and retreat. But God here says to his little weak people, I'm with you. You will thresh whole mountains. You will conquer satanic powers that are unleashed in this world that seem to overwhelm us. You will overwhelm them in the power of Christ, in the name of Christ. And in the midst of it, it may not look real impressive. He go, look what he goes on to say. After this, this strong language of winnowing these mountains and hills, turning them into dust that will be blown away in the breeze, he then describes them as poor and needy, verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, there's none. Their tongue is parched with thirst. I will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I'll open up rivers on the barren heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys, 
And he goes on to describe a desert being converted into a lush garden. But it's not always going to look impressive. Not the way we think it's going to look. What this often looks like is worms threshing hills. <laughs> it looks like weak, tired people crushing the head of Satan. That's what it looks like. In fact, Paul gives a beautiful description on the screen from 2 Corinthians. This is how Paul describes successful apostolic ministry. We have this treasure, the treasure of Christ in us, the power of Christ in us, His presence in jars of clay. Jars of clay are not impressive. They're mundane jars, everyday usage, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us, to show, to show that the world might know, that we might know. Power doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Him. We are afflicted in every way. This is the victorious Christian life. Afflicted in every way. But not crushed. We are perplexed. You ever feel confused? Victorious Christian living. I'm perplexed and confused a lot. Paul says, welcome to the club. <laughs> but I am not driven to despair. I'm persecuted. I'm mistreated. I'm, I'm slandered but I'm not forsaken by my God. I am struck down. I often look like a loser. I fall. I trip. But I'm not destroyed. That's divine power. Perseverance in broken, weak vessels. Worms threshing mountains. That's divine power. That's what it looks like, guys. In our weakness, in our tiredness, in our thirst, we have inner Fountains overflowing. So that, he goes on to say, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He, he describes his whole bodily life as carrying about a, a death so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So that the resurrection power of perseverance is displayed in my tired, weak body. Thirdly and finally, the gods are exposed in this trial. And I'll read this text because we didn't read this portion and just make a few brief comments before we, we return to worship uh, and singing. Verse 21 after addressing his people in the courtroom, comforting them as their counsel, counsel rather, he then turns back to the nations and particularly to their gods and says this, set forth your case, says Yahweh, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. It's so awesome that he calls an exiled, weak, broken people and says, I'm the king of this people. He's not ashamed of them. I'm the king of Jacob and all of his weakness, of that worm that I love and I will thresh nations with, you know. The king of Jacob. Let them bring them. Tell us what's to happen. Go ahead, predict the future. Tell us former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the, the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. It reminds me of Ghostbusters. You guys remember that scene with the giant marshmallow man? You want to remember this? Where the God, this like ancient 
goddess is, a, is sort of conjured and she says, are you a god? And they say no, and then die, you know. And after that, uh, uh, Bill Murray's character says, the next time someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. Um, so that's what God's saying. Are you really God? Show it to us. Show me you're a God. Do good or do harm. Make us afraid. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. I will trample on the rulers as on mortar, and on potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know it? And before him, that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed. None of you heard your words. None who heard, heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look among you, there's no one. Among these, there's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now, the gods of the ancient world, we might be easy to, it might be easy to dismiss this and say, well, that's back then. We don't believe in idols now. We're more sophisticated and secular. We understand these things now. But the reality is that the gods of the ancient world were simply world systems personified. Like the god of money was money. And the god of war was just war, military might. And the god of, there was gods of political persuasion. There was gods of judgment, justice. There were gods of... Of, of marriage and love, right? Just market forces, social pressures, historical forces. They just put a mask on them and called them a god. Well, we may have unmasked them, but we still worship them, and we still live in total fear of them. God's unmasking the powers themselves and saying, which of these forces of history can predict history? They can't. If you're part of the system, you're not a god. God alone, who is the maker of history, can know history's origins and its outcome. This is profound theology. I wish I had more time to unpack it. But we think about the things that we trust in, U.S. military supremacy, our financial power and economic control, political persuasion, the naive belief that we have in the West that if you just throw enough capitalism and democracy at a people, it will finally bring global peace. Nope. Didn't work with China. It's not working, right? Like, but we believe that technology and medical expertise will save us. These are, no, these are all good things, aren't they? An idol is a good thing that's been made into a God thing. These are all good things that we distort and worship and fear. But God says, I alone am sovereign and draws his verdict. These are worthless. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man. Put not your trust in a presidential candidate, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. That very day, all of his great plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets prisoners free, not social progress. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. 
not medical experts. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down, not social justice. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourner or the immigrant. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. My friends, this morning you'll notice the question throughout this passage isn't what, 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 but who, 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 who. Who are you looking to this morning? Who are you looking to to give you rest for your souls and hope for the future? He who promises is good, and he is able to meet all of his promises. And he promises this, you don't have to stay in your fear. You can be comforted by my presence, and I will give you strength. I will be your help. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious promises to weak people. You are a God of compassion in our weakness and our failings. You don't stand away disgusted or removed, but you draw near to us. Lord, draw near to us that we may draw near to our world and be faithful servants who bear witness to our great God. We bear witness now, Lord, in song.